You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Medical Imaging, a program discussing the latest innovations in clinical radiology and imaging technologies. Your host is Dr. Jason Bernholtz, Director of Diagnostic Ultrasound Consultants in Oak Brook, Illinois. Cochlear implantation is a miracle. The technology is sophisticated, the neurophysiologic foundations are complex, and the surgical placement of the device is demanding. Successful cochlear implantation is life-changing, especially for a hearing-impaired, very young child. With me today are Drs. Daniel Chu and Scott Holland from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Dr. Holland is Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Biomedical Engineering, Neuroscience, and Physics, and he's a McLaurin Scholar in Pediatric Neurosurgery. Dr. Chu is Associate Professor of Otolaryngology and Director of Otology Neurology at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Today we are discussing imaging and the state-of-art cochlear implantation. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Our pleasure to be here. Nice to talk with you, Jason. Scott, I'm personally in awe of your multiple disciplines of expertise. It seems to me this is kind of a necessary condition for working on the technology side of cochlear implantation. I wonder if you or Dan might give our listeners some insights about the how and why of uh, cochlear implant devices. I think the research that's currently going on with cochlear implant devices tends to be very interdisciplinary. And as evidenced by the work that Dan and I do together, Here in Cincinnati, it involves contributions from audiologists, physicists like myself, otolaryngologists such as Dr. Dan Chu, and radiology, speech and language pathology, neuropsychology, and on down the list. And I think that's probably a trend in a lot of medical research that involves technology. You have the marriage of the clinical disciplines that benefit from and sort of motivate the technology, and those who understand something about the basic principles of developing the technology and kind of get inspired by these clinical questions to apply their abilities to, you know, working out solutions. Well, all of those interlinked technologies have really improved enormously, each individually and together, since cochlear implantation started years and years ago. I think the first devices had only one channel, and now we have multi-channels. Isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. So the initial cochlear implant devices were a very simple device that just had one electrode that fired on and off at different rates inside the cochlea. And probably the -the state-of-the-art technology now has 22 independently firing electrodes that ideally provide patients with greater resolution and hearing capabilities. Dan, I wonder if we might focus a little bit on very young children. Perhaps you can set a clinical context of how big a problem this is. It's actually a great time to be in this specific area of clinical work because we've recognized that congenital and very early onset hearing loss is the most common neurological birth defect in the United States. So on average across populations, not only in the U.S., but probably globally, at least two per thousand live birth children will have a significant handicapping hearing loss. And if you carry those frequencies in epidemiologic studies out further by age six, as many as six per thousand children will have a handicapping hearing loss. So it places a great clinical imperative to be able to provide those kids with the services and medical care that they need. I feel pretty compelled to mention, you know, I'm unfortunately old enough that I remember 
seeing patients in the pre-cochlear implant era who had severe to profound hearing losses and were trying to make do with hearing aids but had such little residual hearing that even with those maximum hearing aids, they really couldn't hear sufficiently to communicate. And that was the end of our line in terms of medical surgical options for those patients at that time. And I distinctly remember seeing some of my mentors talking to those families and saying, this is the deaf school that your child will go to. You all need to start learning sign language because I really have no other options for you. And that's really the population now that we target for cochlear implantation. So if you have a severe enough hearing impairment that with the optimal hearing aids, you still can't function well, then a cochlear implant is a very feasible option. And particularly when it comes to very young children, especially if we identify them during infancy, our goal, and it's a very realistic goal, is that if we can provide proper hearing and the appropriate early intervention therapies and strategies, by that time that child that reaches five or six years of age, we want you to be able to put them on a school bus and send them off to whatever school you want without any special education, no special assistance, and let them thrive in a very typical environment. Are you talking about children who have never been able to hear well or those who have and have lost it somewhere along the line? Because it seems to me those are very different populations. Very true, Jason. So the harder road is definitely those people who have never heard anything at all and have no language foundations in their brain or in their learning history. And so for someone who's never heard a sound in their life, to start hearing with a cochlear implant and then learning all the sounds as well as speech and language using the implant takes several years for our very young children. But again, by the time we get them to kindergarten and elementary school age, we want to really equip them. And if the family works very hard at that type of thing, it's very feasible. You bring up a point about what we call onset of deafness, whether it's prelingual or postlingual. And then it also implies a factor that's very relevant for us, which is duration of deafness. So let me give you our very best cochlear implant candidate is somebody who was born with normal hearing, learned speech and language very typically, and then at some point down the road, for whatever reason it may be, lost their hearing. If a short time after that loss of hearing, we put a cochlear implant in, almost from day one when we turn the implant on for the first time, those people can actually function at a reasonably high level. It's not perfect, but you can have a conversation with them at normal levels, and they'll be able to pick up most of the words and have a very facile conversation with you. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Medical Imaging. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Drs. Daniel Chu and Scott Holland of the University of Cincinnati, and we're discussing medical imaging and the state-of-art cochlear implantation. Well, gentlemen, let's say you have a very, very young child who has never heard. How do you evaluate their suitability for cochlear implantation? Obviously, if you're dealing with hearing loss and deafness, getting a measure of a child's hearing level, which is the audiologic kind of specialty, is a key piece. And so in very young children who can't perform a very typical hearing test that you and I might be able to do, for example, you know, presented a sound and you raise your hand if you hear the sound, we do passive electrophysiologic type hearing tests in infants 
which is auditory brainstem response testing, as well as otoacoustic emissions testing. Combination of those tests will give us a very precise measure of whether the child has a mild, moderate, severe, or profound hearing loss. And that's probably square one when we're working up this type of population. For a candidate for a cochlear implant, most of our patients are going to be in the severe to profound range of hearing impairments. And it typically is going to be for both ears. So if you have one ear that's deaf, but the other ear is still very serviceable with a hearing aid, that would make you not a typical cochlear implant candidate. So it's only for our children who have bilateral hearing loss. Once we determine that they're actually in the audiologic criteria range for a cochlear implant, one of the first steps we'll move to is imaging. And that's where Scott's group greatly facilitates our overall program. Scott? So as Dan has pointed out, the process of evaluating an infant for a cochlear implant is a little bit different than it is in an adult where you can ask them you know, to raise a hand or nod a head when they hear a sound. In, in a child, we don't get that level of cooperation. And so the research that we're conducting here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital using functional MRI to look at auditory responses attempts to address that issue. We would like to have an objective measure of the hearing ability, the hearing threshold, if you will, in a hearing-impaired infant. And currently, in most states in the United States, I think about 45 states now have mandatory newborn hearing screening in the delivery room. So when the child is born, they're immediately evaluated with an otoacoustic emission test that gives us some idea of their ability to hear. And if they don't pass that test in the delivery room, they're referred for follow-up to audiology where they get some of the evaluations that Dan has described. But those measures tend to be sort of subjective. It sort of depends on the child's behavior on a given day, the audiologist doing the measurements, and a number of other factors. What we have learned is that in the process of evaluating a child for cochlear implant, they often get neuroimaging as part of the procedure, part of the evaluation battery. And that could either be a CT scan, which involves x-rays, or more often these days, the otolaryngologist or the referring physician is sending these children for MRI. And so what we discovered is that we could easily attach a 5 or 10-minute fMRI procedure to their clinical MR scan, and during that interval, we could get some information about the auditory response in the brain. So typically, the cochlear implant is treatment for a child with sensory neural hearing loss, which means that the cochlea is not working properly, and they might have some residual hearing level, so that if we stimulate them at a very high level of auditory input, there may still be conduction through the auditory nerve and to the primary auditory cortex in the brain. And in fact, our hypothesis is that in infants who exhibit that sort of activation in the auditory parts of the brain, we can expect better performance with the cochlear implant. In other words, they may be able to detect sound better, they may be able to process sound better, they may develop better language skills and ultimately do better in school and, and in society. So what we're trying to do with our fMRI procedure is to develop an objective measure or a biomarker, if you will, that allows us to predict how well an infant will do if they receive the cochlear implant in terms of being able to process sound and recognize language. And right now we're in the process of looking at outcome data in kids who've gotten cochlear implants and who had fMRI 
prior to getting the cochlear implant to see if this hypothesis is borne out. Are these kids doing better in developing auditory and language skills two years after a cochlear implant if they had strong auditory cortex activation during the fMRI procedure before they got the cochlear implant? Now, there are some complexities doing fMRI in these kids. One of the big issues is that once the cochlear implant is installed, we really can't repeat the MR procedure. And so it's kind of a once-and-done affair. We, we look at them before they receive the implant, and then you know, from that point on, we can really only do the behavioral audiology and the language and speech evaluations. There are new technologies on the horizon, however, that may be applicable to these kids after they receive the cochlear implant as well as before. One of the techniques that is starting to gain some interest is near-infrared spectrophotometry. And it, it essentially uses the same principle as fMRI does. It looks at blood flow and blood oxygenation in the auditory parts of the brain when you stimulate through the ear with an auditory input. But it has the advantage of not having magnetic fields and RF pulses that might either damage the cochlear implant or you know, move the device around in the head. It seems to me that there are lots of other ways that imaging comes into this as well, probably in evaluating the anatomic suitability, picking your path for channeling the implantation. And I suppose that when the implantation is done now, do you use robotic or minimally invasive techniques? So there's a wide variety of techniques, and thankfully people are very accommodating, and it's a really well-tolerated procedure that I got to tell you, it has become about as standard as taking out an appendix or a gallbladder. There are some really minimal access techniques, which through approximately a one-inch incision, for example, behind the ear, you can insert a cochlear implant in a very systematic and very safe fashion. Older techniques used a much larger incision, and thankfully the outcome studies show that regardless of what technique you use to insert the device, long-term outcomes in terms of function are pretty equivalent. Even regardless of what type of surgical technique you do, in slightly older children as well as adults, the procedure is actually an outpatient. In our infants that we do this in, we'll watch them for a 23-hour basis. So they'll come in in the morning, have their implant inserted, and then go home the following morning. And about 24 to 48 hours after surgery, parents will say that the kids were very difficult to keep held down and they were back to running around and resuming normal activity. Thanks to Dr. Scott Holland and Daniel Chu, our guests from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. We've been discussing medical imaging and state-of-the-art cochlear implantation. You've been listening to Advances in Medical Imaging. For more details on this week's show or to download the segment, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.